Hey, everybody. How we doing? Awesome. Hey, can we, uh, this, is, this is something that I said a long time ago, but it's always true week after week. Half of our auditorium is watching with us online, and we just want to welcome them into the room right now with us. Can you guys just, our Harlan family, this is uh, something that's weird for us in 2021, but it's so true. And we're glad that you guys are here, and, and, and I just pray uh, by God's power and the spirit that you feel loved uh, and, and, and welcomed here, and that God has a word for you as well. So glad that you're watching with us. Well, hey, uh, people are capable. How many people know this is true? People are capable of some incredible, incredible things. You know that? That's true. People are awesome. People have this incredible, uh, from like big things, like... Um, being able to use our intellect and our knowledge to make sense of the world and to create societies, to even the small things, like college dudes who stand on the one side of a parking lot and overhand throw a basketball far, far away through a tiny hoop and it makes 10 million views on YouTube. Amazing, incredible things, right? Am I preaching anybody's love language yet? You've wasted hours watching videos of people doing amazing things. People uh, can do some incredible things, but people also dream some incredible dreams. I, I could go back through history, but I, this week I just thought of two really incredible dreams that changed the landscape of culture and society from just a generation ago. Uh, two dreams from the 1960s that really shaped for us the exploration of, of one frontier after another. The first is a, is a, was from uh, John F. Kennedy, who gave a speech in 1962, talking about the dream that we had as a country to send someone up into space. And um, if you think that was a weird dream, you're right. And here's John F. Kennedy defending that decision. Just take a look at this. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. A dream to go to the moon. Just about uh, 11 months after uh, JFK gave this speech, some of you remember that speech, and some of you remember voting for JFK. It's good to have you in the room today. Uh, a couple months later, there was another person who on the mall of Washington, D.C. famously said, I have a dream. That was who? Martin Luther King Jr. A dream that would reshape the cultural landscape of a country. See, the right dream at the right moment to the right people with the right resources to make the right decisions can change the future. Uh, just 10 days ago, I was struck by how this, this dream of space exploration, now 50 years into the future, uh, bared itself out in a really strange, weirdly awesome way the other day. About 10 days ago, this group of four civilians were the first non-professional astronauts to go to space by themselves. <clears throat> I don't know if this means they're awesome or crazy. But they uh, took a trip higher than any non-professional astronaut had ever traveled. Uh, this is the, the, the group. It was um, a 200 billion, or 200 million, sorry, dollar flight. 200 million dollar flight. 
I don't know how you spend your $200 million, but that sounds awesome to me. And uh, that's a, that was a, a group of people, a, a mixed group of men and women, black and white, who are up uh, exploring space together. Um, here's what I learned. Within a matter of, matter of half a century, one dream led to one amazing feat, which then allowed us to get the keys to the space shuttle. That's incredible. I love that. People who are capable of incredible things, and we dream some incredible dreams. You know, some dreams are born of opportunity and out of curiosity. Like, what would happen if we went to the moon? Some dreams, most dreams, are born out of adversity, out of this deep desire to see the world be better than it actually is, out of a hope for something better around us. Hey, I wonder this. What dreams do you dream? Not the, like, you know, I want to have a really nice, you know, future for my kids dreams, but like the the monumental, God-sized, earth-shattering dreams. The dreams that require God to make the timing all work out and provide the resources and work in the hearts of others to have us all work together. Do you have any of those dreams, those monumental God-sized dreams? Maybe uh, right now, the moment that we're in right here, it feels like I'm describing someone else's dreams to us is because we've imagined these monumental dreams are for the billionaires and the rich and famous among us. Culture-changing dreams, we think, belongs to someone else. But I think our faith in Jesus would cause us to disagree. I think, actually, if we thought about it, our faith in God would push us to dream the biggest dreams. And that's why we as a church here at Harlan, over the next season together, we're going to be stepping into this story, an incredible story of God using an ordinary person to do extraordinary things. See, there's a man in the Bible named Nehemiah. Nehemiah's story has been preserved uh, for thousands of years as a part of the Old Testament. In fact, Nehemiah did something so amazing, he accomplished something so great that what he built thousands of years ago, some parts of it are still intact today. And God used Nehemiah in profound ways back then. And I actually want to show you over the next couple of weeks how God is using Nehemiah in our hearts and in our minds still today. So what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is to actually go through his memoir and understand some lessons on life and leadership and what happens when God causes us to dream big dreams. Anybody ready for walking through a book together here? All right, we're going to do that. Now that you're excited to walk through the book, here's verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Anybody still excited to go through a book together? (laughs) Uh, I I made this joke in the first service. It was really a bad joke. Um, I said, if you're having a child and you're looking for names for boys, Hakaliah is a good one. And I found out afterwards that in that moment, a pregnant woman's baby's uh, belly leaped. And so I said, you've got to name him Hakaliah. It's a sign. <laughs> I don't think they're coming back. <laughs> okay, so, so maybe you missed this part of like, you know, this was extra credit in your world history class sophomore year. Um, but let me just help us understand this. Because in this one sentence, we got you know, like everything we need to know about Nehemiah. First, he's the son of Hakaliah. That's who he is. Uh, second, when did he live? It was in, it was, or when was this? It was the month of Kislev, which is a month that corresponds to our calendar's November. And where was he? Well, he was in the citadel of Susa. That doesn't mean much to us, but it's the Persian Empire. And think about the West Wing. If I were to tell you the West Wing, that's kind of the central seat of power. That's where, that's where Nehemiah lived. It's where he operated. Now, it sounds like he's a privileged person who comes from high means, but actually Nehemiah is not special. His, his father, Hakaliah, he's mentioned twice in history. That's kind of cool, but both times he's mentioned because he's the father of Nehemiah. If your only claim to fame is that you had a son, you're not really that important, right? We kind of get that. 
Nehemiah wasn't born to royalty. That's the point. He was in a palace, but not because he was of high status, but rather because of this next thing. It was the 20th year. Uh, the Jewish people who would hear this memoir read to them would understand that the 20th year referred to the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes I. I know, we're like super deep into ancient history. But this was a moment. The 20th year meant something to them. Kind of like the moment that I could describe to you. If, if, if I told Kansas, you know, <laughs> those who lived in Kansas City, that I was in Kauffman Stadium in October of 2015, you would know exactly what was going on in Kauffman Stadium in October of 2015, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, those are some glory days. Some, some, yeah, don't applaud, it's fine. Uh, and this is actually, this, it rises to the same level of importance in the mind of a Jewish person, that the 20th year was a really important moment because that was the year that something sort of earth-shaking happened that Nehemiah was a part of. It was, it was this understanding that God was working in the midst of the heart of King Artaxerxes to help the people of God. Let me get, just get one more minute from you to get, over, get through this history lesson, and then, and then we're going to move on to, to the Bible. Are you guys still with me? Online, you with me in the chat? You still good? Thumbs up, fire emoji, I don't know, something, just hello? Great. <clears throat> Here's the history. 140 years before Nehemiah, the Babylonians took over Jerusalem. They ransacked it. They took the powerful ruling class, the wealthy class, out of Jerusalem, and they left kind of the peasantry. And what this did was disorient the social structure so there'd be all these people who would be, you know, up in arms but have nobody to lead them or fund their rebellions. And so the, the, the kings, the Babylonians, would take the privileged people or the smart people or the, the rich people and they'd take all of their wealth and all of their knowledge to their hometowns and, and that would go to their king. They would work for the king and they would leave the cities fended off. This in the Bible is what is called the exile. After a few decades and changes of power, there was one king, Cyrus, who actually was a pretty humane ruler. He issued a decree which reversed some of the policies from the past. Most notably, he allowed some of the different nations to return people back to their homes to start up their, their centers of their religion. They did this to earn goodwill amongst the people that they ruled. And so some of the Jewish people returned to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but most of the Jewish people were still scattered abroad in captivity, serving foreign kings. This was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was somebody who was a Jewish person who was born in captivity, who rose to ranks to help serve a foreign king. And one day in the month of November, the 20th year, Nehemiah's brother arrived in Susa and told him this news. Here's kind of where um, the story begins. It says, those this is what he heard from his brother. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province, they were back in Jerusalem, they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now we can all kind of put ourselves back into Monty Python ancient history and kind of remember the fact that back in this day to be a city meant you had to have some sort of protective system and walls and gate systems were kind of your, your ring home security of the day. It was the way that you established yourself and preserved yourself so that foreign enemies couldn't just march in and take you over. When Nehemiah heard that the walls were broken down and the gates were burned, it burdened him. He sat down and he wept and, and for a few days he mourned and he fasted. I wonder this, have you ever gotten news that took the wind out of you? Have you ever gotten news from home that made you not eat for a couple of days? 
This is where Nehemiah found himself. He was burdened. He was burdened because he, he thought that God had promised to provide and protect his people. He, he, he thought that God was going to bring his people back from wherever they were facing. But, but for years, for decades, even for over a century, God hadn't allowed his people to come back, that something was wrong, that it seemed like God wasn't up to his end of the bargain. He thought that his people were vulnerable and susceptible to become defeated and taken advantage of again. Hey, I wonder what burdens you. What do you look around the world at and see that it strikes close to your home and say, that isn't right, that breaks your heart? And I wonder, what do you do when you get news of things like that? We, we can imagine if um, Nehemiah was born in our society today, he might do the thing that we all are tempted to do when we find things that we don't like in the world. Nehemiah, we would say, might just grab his phone, open up Facebook, and start a post. And he could just post and throw a hashtag on it and put it on Facebook and say, look, my people are in atrocity. Everybody needs to know about this. And then Derek, good. I brought awareness to it. I can't be blamed for whatever happens. Right? Oh, is that too close to home for us? Come on, Heartland. That's not too close to home. You know that's true. We might imagine Nehemiah um, actually opening up not, not the Facebook app, but maybe the Venmo app or his cash app. And, and sending money back to Jerusalem for people to buy mortar to put the wall back together. He said, I'm over here in Susa. What do I have to do with you way over there? Like, here's some money you figured out. And, and I'm kind of poking fun at this, but this is how my heart works. Whenever I'm faced with a burden in this world that I think I'm too small to make a difference is my mind automatically goes to awareness and resources. I can use my whatever platform I have on social media to help people understand, like, I care about this thing. But, but I'll post about it, but I won't do anything about it, right? Or I'll send money, but I won't actually go there. And what Nehemiah doesn't miss that you and I might be prone to miss in this question of what should we do in these moments, what Nehemiah doesn't miss that maybe we miss is, is the fact that in this moment, Nehemiah finds that this is one of those moments. This is one of those like monumental moments in life where he realized that the burden of what he was facing was way too big for any one person to solve. This is one of those only God moments. This was like a monumental, like only God can, can do this type moments. And, and, and so he, he did what we do when we realize that only God can do something. He, he prayed. Now, I know, prayer seems like the lowest base thing you could do for someone. We kind of throw it around like, oh, I'll just pray for you. Like, I, I'll just pray for you, right? Like, like it's not even going to work if I pray. Some of us have been on the receiving side of like that, I'll just pray for you. And actually, um, they prayed for you. And if that's what prayer does, I actually wish you wouldn't have prayed for me because it didn't do anything. And for some of us, we, um, we want to do more than just pray. And so I get it. It sounds really cheap, but I hope over the next couple of moments here that as we kind of dig through this together, you're going to see the value of what happens in these moments of life when only God can do something that we approach God in prayer. This is what Nehemiah models for us. Nehemiah is a book on leadership. It is a book that shows us how to lead each other and to lead ourselves. Modern leadership books today tell us how to win friends, influence people, create raving fans. Nehemiah is a book on how to show us how to live the life and lead the life that God is leading you through. Today's books, um, one guy named Peter Drucker, he wrote a, some fantastic books with great principles. One of his principles is the idea of first things first, that great leaders do uh, the important things and only the important things. 
Peter Drucker, I think, pulled a page out of Nehemiah because Nehemiah shows us that prayer is the first thing. That if we want to actually walk through life knowing what God has for us, in these moments where only God could do the thing that we want to see, that only God could save a city, we got to go to God in prayer. Here's the first lesson is this, that only God can make it right. When only God can make it right, we pray. Because only God can make it right, we pray. Okay, so let's, let's check this out. I want you to see this. Here's Nehemiah's prayer. He, he brings God his burden, he prays. And, and, and here's what he says. He says, um, a God-sized prayer. He said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Okay, so in this prayer, Nehemiah is reminded that God's dwelling place is heaven, a place of perfect peace. From heaven there, his greatness and power is seen all throughout this world. It always has been trusted. It always has been true. Even as I say that out loud, that has a sense of calming presence to it, doesn't it? We get the picture that as Nehemiah makes God bigger in his prayer, his problems get smaller. He, he asks the question, what can't God do? God is faithful to those who honor him. He hears us and he sees us in daytime and in nighttime, those who honor him. And what stands out to me in the next part of Nehemiah's prayer is, is the fact that he acknowledges that something wasn't right in the world. And he gets to the word that we sometimes shrink back from in our society because it, it kind of is a judgmental word, but it's a word we need not be afraid of, we need to be honest with. The word is Sin. Watch what he does. He, look, at, look at the next verse. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites. And then this is really uncomfortable for us, but let's just read it because it's in the Bible. Including myself and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant, Moses. Nehemiah says, we are wrong and I am wrong. We would ask the question, well, how are you wrong? And the, the answer is they didn't follow the original commands that God gave to his people hundreds of years ago, generations prior. Put simply, they didn't put God first in their lives and they settled instead for the gold of the world and for the gods of this world instead of the God of heaven. Here's what I want you to see. Only someone who is not self-righteous could pray this prayer. Nehemiah is not a self-righteous person. A self-righteous person might say, I didn't do the thing that everybody else did. I'm not guilty. And we might expect Nehemiah, someone who was born in exile, who wasn't the one that committed the sins, you know, 100 years prior, he was kind of living up in a different system in a different world for him to say, Everyone around me sinned, but God, you know me. You know where I've been. And instead, Nehemiah simply says, God, this whole thing's a mess. This whole thing is wrong. We're all wrong. He says, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself, my father's family, have committed against you. A self-righteous person cannot pray or dream God-sized dreams because they'll always approach it with a self-justifying idea. 
Nehemiah shows us what it looks like for us to realize that only God can make it right. It means humbling yourself to see that you lack the power to heal what is broken. Friends, this is what God does. He heals broken things. He makes things right. Whenever in your life you've repaired a relationship with someone else, that was a God thing. Whenever a home was reunited, that's a God thing. Whenever a church is reborn, that's a God thing. God takes broken things and broken people and puts them back together. Amen? It's exactly what God does. Only God can do that. Self-righteous people don't do that. It's a work of God. So I wonder if there's a fracture in your life that only God can make right, what do you do about it? You pray. Nehemiah confesses sin, he deals with the difficult, and then he reminds God of a promise. Look at this. He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, well, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And Nehemiah is kind of like, check, we're scattered. But if you return to me, this is the hope. If you return to me, the, 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 the New Testament word is repent. If you turn around, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, here at Hartley, we call those people the furthest out. I call it the farthest from home. Those who have, who, who have been put to the ends of the earth who maybe don't know that God is for them. Even if your people are exiled at the farthest horizon, look at the promise from God. I, everybody say this with me, come on. I will gather. All right, I hope online you're saying it better than people in the room. <laughs> One more time, come on now. This is like really important. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Here's, here's the second thing Nehemiah shows us that, you know, only God can make it right, so pray, but here, only God can move mountains, so pray. Nehemiah's prayer actually acknowledges that something is broken that God can fix, and to do it is going to take a monumental move of God, but one that he promised. God said if we return to him, he will gather his people, return them from being scattered across the nations. God had scattered them. Now he promised to return them. So Nehemiah's dream was no small thing. He was literally asking God to upend the common social norms of the day where kings could just take over people and enlist them into his service. And he was asking God to free them from the king and restore them to their city. He prayed for God to move mountains. I think only people who realize how small they are and how monumental their problems are will actually take the time to pray. You, you know, self-sufficient people don't pray. They have all that they need already baked inside of them. I think if I kind of read my mail along with your mail, isn't self-sufficiency one of the most seductive attempts for power that we have today? It's a quest for many of us, yet it's a quest that detaches us from our true power in God. And listen, I don't know about you, but I don't want more of me. I got enough of me. I need more of him. That's what John the Baptist said in, in, in the beginning of the book of John. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. Or Paul said it another way. He, he said, um, when I am weak, he is strong. I had a mentor once tell me this line that kind of haunted me as a 18-year-old, just 18-year-old punk Dan Jacobson that didn't really know what was going on in the world but thought he had it all together. He said, he said this to me. He said, you know, there's no greater loss than the loss that self-sufficiency brings when you think you don't need Jesus. And Nehemiah 
recognizes that he doesn't have what it takes. I read this um, quote this week from Abraham Lincoln. I think there are times in our life where we're so up against it that we, we have no other option. We need God to move mountains, and so we must pray. Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of those about me seemed insufficient for the day. There's a beauty in our insufficiency, and I believe that there's some amazing promises of God that he wants to do in your life, some freedoms he wants to give you, some healing he wants to provide for you, some victories he wants to win for you. If you would just ask him, he would move the mountains for you if you prayed. I believe that for our church family this church family that we call Heartland. I believe that God has brought us together. It's like different in different seasons of this church, but, but the people who have been around this family called Heartland have seen God move mountains. We've seen it in situations decades ago in a basement of a little house that, that the only people that believed in the work that God was doing was the dozens of people that were gathered in the basement themselves. And from there, something happened, something ignited and like wildfire, sort of this, this movement began and it ended up purchasing a little school in a neighborhood such that hundreds of cars would come line the streets. And I think if you lived there, you tried to sell your house and get out of there because it was so annoying on Sunday mornings. The police had to come and like escort people on back onto the, onto the road because it was just too much was happening. And, and, so, and then um, God moved a mountain to provide a bigger facility that would help more people encounter Jesus and have their lives changed. And God provided this place Right here. Do you know how God provided? I just learned this story this week. Many of you are brand new just like me, but um, many of you remember this very well. Uh, this used to be a furniture store. You could buy a couch here. If you want to buy some of our furniture, just talk to me. I'd be happy to sell it to you. Before that, it was a Sam's Club. Walmart owned much of this lease with a decade remaining on it. Millions of dollars they, they had invested into this place and were still outstanding. Have you ever tried to take something back to Walmart? You know how like hard that can be sometimes? Working with Walmart's not an easy task. But God moved a mountain for this church we call Heartland over a decade and a half ago for, for, for someone at Walmart to pick up our call. For someone at Walmart to say, yeah, you can have the building for half of what it's actually work, worth. And God saw it fit for his people to be provided for, and he moved mountains. And so you say, well, Dan, why do you even bring that up? Are we moving the church again? Like, is there another Walmart? <laughs> no. I bring it up because I don't want us to forget the way that God has moved mountains for us. The, the way that God has always been doing this for us. And then here's what, here's what I want to say. Why did God do that? Not because we were good or righteous. Not because we were wealthy or had resources, or were sufficient. He did it because we prayed. From a basement to a school by prayer. From a school to a warehouse by prayer. And I don't think we've even scratched the surface of what God wants to do in this faith community right here if we would just pray. If we would just tell God, hey, we're here for you, we're open to you, God, unfold a monumental movement of miraculous intervention here, change the landscape of our society here, God, we beg of you. If you're wondering, you know, some of you are like, Dan, what should we pray? 
how should we pray? I, I've got a prayer that I think I just want to lead us in. I want to ask you to pray. It's not like a, a vision statement. It's not nothing that you're going to see on the walls, but I just think it's something that's near and dear to our hearts. It's a very short sentence. You can get it really, really easily. I just think the prayer for us is simple, that God would use Heartland to change hearts. Isn't that what we want? That God would use Heartland to change hearts. We, we already prayed this prayer. We say this already. We say that we want to make space to build relationships for people to put Jesus first. Jesus first is a phrase that just simply means that someone's heart has been changed towards God. But how many of us know, I really love to see a show of hands, how many of us know that it's impossible to change someone else's heart? If you're married, it's okay to raise your hand. They know. I mean, it's just, it's just a, it's impossible. We, we try it all the time. How's that going for you when you type that thing out on Facebook to change everybody else's hearts? Is that going well for you? Is that good? You liking that environment of a million comments where everybody misunderstands each other and nobody moves? Nehemiah knew how impossible it was for someone's heart to be changed by God or for someone's heart to be changed. This was an only God type of thing. He said this, only God can change hearts. So we pray. I want to show it to you. Here's the last verse of his prayer. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of this, your servants, and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. And watch this. This is kind of fancy talk for this. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of, and then he says, this man. This man has yet to be defined in Nehemiah's memoir, but, but we know this to be King Artaxerxes. There was a specific heart that Nehemiah needed God to change if he was going to be able to help his people. You think about Moses and Pharaoh and how God had to work in Pharaoh's heart to either soften it or harden it. Nehemiah had his own Pharaoh, his own king that God needed. And he knew this. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So to get the king's help, he would need God's help. And I wonder, you've been dreaming some specific dreams in your life or your future that require some hearts around you to be changed. <laughs> How do we change a heart? I thought about that this week. thought about that. Like, how could I change your heart with you? And I thought it would be so easier if I could just Ebenezer Scrooge you. If I could just, like, Christmas carol you through the journey of, like, Christmas's past and present and future and then show you just how awful you've been to everybody and whatnot. And then your heart would change. You'd be like, yes, I changed. I'm sorry. But I can't, I, I can't do that. I can't you know, on, on my Zoom calls, win friends and influence people to have heart change. I can't shame someone who's being cruel to others into loving them instead. What do I have? What do you have that will change a heart? Well, it's prayer. We, we have prayer. Because only God can change a heart. So this is what I love about Nehemiah. He's like a pastor's dream because everything the Bible tells us we should be for, for those who love God and who, who honor him, Nehemiah is. But he's also so practical in what he's going to do next. But I want you to see this today as we begin this journey, that it all starts with prayer. Nehemiah is not impressed with his own position or his own abilities. He's not self-righteous. He's not self-sufficient. He's not self-inflated. I think whenever God does something in, in history that is monumental, he's taken a strong person and leads them to a place of weakness and dependence upon him. 
The moment of activation of God's hand in our lives is the monumental moment when we take our dreams and we give them over to God and we tell them about what we want. I was reminded of even in Jesus' own life. You remember the night that he's betrayed, he's in a garden with his, 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 his friends, his followers, and he's praying a prayer. He's in anguish. Luke tells us that he's so, so in anguish that he starts to like sweat blood. His heart is burdened for what God is about to do through him and changing the landscape of, of eternity. Jesus realized that only God could fix what was broken. Jesus realized that only God could move this mountain. Jesus realized that only God could change these hearts. It would take an act of God. It would take his act of trusting in God's plan to bring it about. And and it was such a burden for him that the first thing he did that night that he was betrayed was pray. Three times he went and he prayed this simple prayer. He said, Father, And then these next couple words just astound me. If it is possible. It struck me in the first service as I was teaching this about how just just absolutely incomprehensible that thought is. For for Jesus to, to ask his own father, whom he knows the power of full well, his power, his strength, his might, to say, if you can do this, Would you just find another way? Because I think the only way forward is for me to do the thing that you have for me to do. And Jesus' own work began with prayer. And so here's here's what I want to show you from Nehemiah. So there's a dream inside of you that God's given you. If you're a follower of his, there's something that he's put inside of you. I don't know what it is, whether it's starting a school or starting a business or or even just the dream of having a family or encouraging your kids along the way or if there's a a conversation that as I speak, you realize something's not right or you gotta put it back together and you wanna have a conversation with someone that God would change their heart for it. I don't know what it is for you, but, but here's what I know, here's where it begins. It begins when we take the things that only God can do, the only God can make it right, only God can move a mountain, only God can change a heart. And so, church, we pray. I'd love to do that right now. God, there's so much in this that we think about. I think about the fact, God, that that I am a sinful person. I've, along with my brothers and sisters, walked away from you. That's something I'm guilty of, God, and I need you to make it right. Thank you for making that right through Jesus on the cross. And I think about the monumental moves of you that we need in this world to see our society flourish. And I recognize, God, that there is power in prayer. And so, God, forgive me for the moments when I've doubted your power. And, Father, we know that what you do is change hearts. That's like the thing you're awesome at. And so we give up trying to do that for each other. And just like Nehemiah asked God you to change the heart of a king, God, we ask you to change the heart of our city. We ask you to change the heart of our church. We ask you to change the heart of our families. We ask you to change our own hearts. God, we come to you today knowing that this is something that only you can do. So this is a monumental dream. 
and a pretty monumental prayer, but we believe that you can do it. If you agree with that prayer, I'd love for you to say amen. Hey, I'm so excited to teach part two of this series on Nehemiah, but that'll have to wait till next week. We'll see you then.